for I feel like 20 years she's been a ninja she's an awesome ninja and she learned a lot of cool ninja stuff but she also is like a fairy princess you know X-Men X-Men in the 21st century evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world only hope is X-Men Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Marvel Comics writer Teeny Howard, currently the writer on Excalibur and the co-writer with Jonathan Hickman of the upcoming franchise-wide X-Men event, Ten of Swords. Thanks for stopping by, Teeny. Hi, Connor. How are you today? I'm good. I'm a little nervous because this is our inaugural episode, um, but... if you are any bit as uh, uh, charming and insightful as you usually are when we talk about the X-Men, this is going to be a great time. <laughs> oh, that's very sweet. So f- full disclosure, I am Teeny's literary agent, but that's a relatively recent development. And before we started working together, um, we were just, I was just a fan who became friends with her because I was such, I was really loving uh, everything she's doing on the new run of Excalibur. So I am very excited oh. to have her here for our first episode to talk about one of my favorite X-Men and also one of the most complicated, historically speaking, X-Men, which is why I thought it would be a really fun first episode because I want to make this podcast newbie friendly. And if you don't quite understand just how insane the X-Men can become, uh, this is a great just dive in the deep end moment. We are here to talk about Betsy Braddock, uh, formerly known as the X-Man Psylocke and currently known as the current Captain Britain. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> we got a raise! Yeah, no, exactly. She got a promotion. I mean, the thing is, she was—I mean, she tried it out in 1986 and it That's did not right. go very well. So it's nice that, um, you know, these 30-something years later, she gets another shot at it. I mean, isn't that a great a great story about opportunities, though? You know, sometimes something just isn't right for you at the time, but when you come back around, you're ready for it. I I think so. And there's also something. I mean, there's there's sort of a funny. I was doing a lot of back reading um, before we did this because I love love the old '80s Captain Britain stuff, and I uh, I know that like me, you also prefer Psylocke before the Siege Perilous, which is like not the most common opinion. So I appreciate that we operate on that level together. Um, but I, uh, I really, I wanted to go back and, and sort of revisit a couple of the key issues like the Jasper's warp and stuff. And, um, it is interesting. I, I had forgotten that Betsy is actually older than Brian by like a couple seconds. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's sort of a, like her getting the, the title now, it kind of does feel like she should have had it back then. You know what I mean? Like she is the heir. She's just a girl. So <laughs> Right, right. Um because well, I mean yeah. nobody's giving it to Jamie. You know what I mean? So like you gotta that you gotta bypass. But once you get down to the twins. And there's also that thing of like uh like do you view it as that, you know, it, it, it's in a book about uh Britain ostensibly, it's an interesting question, right? The idea of, of is is monarchy a good idea right <laughs> the idea of like is this kind of like uh hereditary transfer of titles the best way to do it or uh do we let the girl do it if she's better at it like... right and and i mean the actual royals just uh altered the, it won't actually matter for the next like two generations or whatever but they yeah. did change the rule 
um, you know, it would still be uh, the princess who gets to rule. So it's not necessary. It's not like we're, you know, radically undoing monarchy, but uh, baby steps, I guess. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just think it is a nice full circle uh, thing for for Betsy as a character, especially once I went back and reread some of those uh, stories that I love so much from that time. Um, and I also think that it was a really smart idea on Marvel's part because for basically my whole life, um, because my father is an X-Men collector. And so I grew up uh, reading mostly like Claremont back issues. That was like my real bread and butter. And um, I have wanted them to like, quote unquote, fix Psylocke for a long time because I thought that the fact that, I mean, there's obviously Ninja Psylocke is extremely cool, but I liked Betsy as herself, you know, and I also, as I got older, realized sort of all of the very complicated racial weirdness about Psylocke. And um, I think that what's been done now, um, first in Mystery and Madripoor, and then in Dawn of X in particular, is a really smart way to fix the character after, you know, 30 years since 1989 when the Siege Perilous storyline happened, which is that you have now Betsy in her original white person European body um, as Captain Britain, you know, taking on a new mantle that she can feel good about that feels like a, an evolution of the character that makes sense. And you give Kanon the Psylocke code name and the Jim Lee costume with the swimsuit. If anybody is getting weirded out right now, the W in Kanon is silent. And I'm, I'm sorry if that's a new information to you. I certainly didn't know it as a child, but I am going to say it that way. Uh, if you, listener, prefer to say Kanon, that is absolutely your right. But I would feel weird now that I know. I, am, I also learned that recently and I'm like, it, so if I say Kanon, <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> No, you're allowed. You're allowed. I learned it uh, like some years back because I was it was completely unrelated. I was like I, I was watching something about like worship of the Bodhisattva Kanon. I was like, oh, I uh, I read an interview with Fabian Nicieza, actually, where he was like, I pronounce it with the W, but please, whatever the fans want to do is fine by me that I don't I am hardly an expert on like Japanese romanization. Yeah. Um. Anyway, point is, all that, to go back, I think it is really smart because the problem and the reason why I think it's been so hard to bring Betsy back to basics is that she became so much more popular at, in Kanon's body. So that design of Psylocke is the Psylocke that most lay people know. And it makes a lot of sense to me to have Kanon be Psylocke and give her an opportunity because Psylocke was the biggest Asian superhero at Marvel for a long time except she was secretly a white lady trapped in an Asian woman's body so giving Kanon the ability to be her own character to be Psylocke to have the look everybody recognizes and to like actually be a Japanese woman in the X-Men I think is a really cool idea so I'm I'm very excited I've been enjoying uh, the way that's shaken out. Yeah. But I'm also really, really enjoying your work with, with Captain Britain. So Thank I you. guess what I want to do is sort of ask you, what is, you know, I sort of just shared my backstory with the character, I guess. What's your history with Betsy? Where did you come to her? What uh, What is sort of your entry point with the character? Sure. Uh, so I guess my original entry point with the character is the X-Men uh, in the 90s. You know, um, I... I watched the cartoon. I didn't really read a lot of X-Men comics growing up. Uh, 
I didn't because I was, frankly, a, a little girl. And, you know, it's harder to get comics. Like, I didn't go into comic shops to buy superhero comics until right. I was older. And I was with, like, the guy that became my husband, Blake, and, uh, you know, my friend Alex and stuff. And, and they were the guys that kind of turned me on to superhero comics as a whole. But I kind of got into, like, Betsy as a character in, like, the most kind of backwards way possible, which is that I, I really like Alan Moore's work. And so I got, mm-hmm. I kind of like found my way there because I just, I really like a, a lot of British comic book writers and a lot of what was like the going on in that era and like the eighties, like Marvel UK stuff. It's just very like aesthetically and from a story to, it, it's, you can probably tell if you've read Excalibur, that's very appealing to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, like I, I really enjoy that kind of, uh, eighties, like Alan Moore flavored weirdo magic. Um, and so that was the stuff, like, so I kind of got into Betsy, like, the most backwards way possible. It wasn't like I picked up an X-Men comic and decided I liked her and went and learned more about her, which is probably how everyone else in the world got into this character. And for me, it was like, I like Alan Moore. I like these 80s right. British comics. Like, I'm going to start reading these weird old Captain Britain stories. And they rule, because I started, you know, enjoying them because I like fantasy and because I like... Uh, the you know part of why I like Alan Moore's work is because he plays a lot with the the mythos of comics. Absolutely, he treats them like you know a hero cult of old. You know, yeah. and that great. He and Grant Morrison both kind of do that. I think yeah. that's sort of what they're both known for. I mean, and I love that. I I eat that up. I'm absolutely you know just a fiend for it so same that's my favorite stuff yeah so for me like the idea of of for me writing Excalibur was like bringing back that that feeling right so um so I got into Betsy and the Betsy that I came to love first was actually the like purple haired mean girl in Strike that the X-Men didn't really like right right Uh, (laughs) and that was like a I remember like reading a Captain Britain comic and like my first, like being like, this is Brian Braddock and his sister Betsy and being like, oh yeah. Like back before I really, you know, wrote for Marvel and like knew the X-Men well being like, oh I get, yeah, she used to be like a white lady. And and then being like, oh, I really like, I really like this character. And then like feeling like very strange about like so much of the, the, the baggage that she got had to deal with. One thing I'm really grateful for that is, you know, when we were talking about Conan earlier, is that the whole time we've been in the Dawn of X and, and writing this post mystery in Madripoor Betsy, where it's like the Betsy Braddock as she was, you know, I don't want to say into the created. Body. Well, yeah, as, as she, as was, she the, was created, yeah, the yeah was created. initially. Um, I've been really grateful because there has been someone the whole time doing uh, character work with Psylocke. And so I feel like I have been building and working towards and, and um, I can make, we can, we can tell this story in a way that I don't feel like I have to make sure that the character of color isn't being underserved, right? Like I'm really, really right. glad that I work with people who are, I, I work with a really like smart, knowledgeable, diverse crew of writers and creators who are uh, in understanding that like, um, these are two awesome 
X women. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, uh, I I love Zeb Wells is doing incredible work in Hellions with Con. Oh my god, I love that book. <laughs> I mean, I adore that book because, as you know, as because this is something that Tina and I talk about a lot. Um, Madeline Pryor is one of my all-time favorite characters, and I'm a I'm a big Maddie partisan. So the fact that it's Canon and Maddie and Havoc, who I have a soft spot for, talk about someone who's had a lot of baggage and bad stories, <laughs> but it's not his fault. Um, you know, it's that's that book is really kind of made for me. Um, I do feel like that should be the one called Marauders, though, right? Because it's sinister. I know that it came. No, after, I get you. Yeah, but it's confusing. It I it always throws me that Emma's book is called Marauders and Sinister's book is called Hellions. It feels like it should be the other way around. But you know, that's life. Um, <laughs> and Marauders makes more sense for pirates. I do get that. Um, but uh, to to go back um for a sec, yeah, I think that you know one thing that um friends of mine who are fans who are Asian said when Psylocke was finally turned back. I mean, a lot of them were very happy about it because it's a character that they want to love, but that they've always felt a little conflicted and strange about. And then on the other hand, they also felt a little sad about it because for the last, for, for, for a good stretch of time, you know, almost 30 years, um, that character was sort of the most prominent Asian X-Man. And and so in terms of video games or movies or whatever, like that's the Asian character you're going to get. It was basically right. her Jubilee. Um, and so I I really am happy that, because I loved Canon when she was Revanche. Like I, you know, the I, the retcon is messy and we'll, I'll get to that in the character overview in a second. But, um, you know, I, I love Revanche's design, first of all. I would love to see her wear that costume again at some point. It's a great look. Um, it is a lie. great costume. Um, but uh, I, I, I found her to be a compelling character in the 90s. And I love that she's back. And I love that this cool, like, ninja chick who the whole world fell in love with in the 90s gets to actually, like, own her own body and be the Psylocke that everyone likes. And like, it actually gets to be her. She's not just getting, you know, her skin used essentially for like a cool, sexy vibe. Yeah. Um, so I'm really excited about it. Um, and I can't wait to see what happens in Hellions. It's a great gift too, in the hands of a writer like Zeb, because, um, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's good at remembering that, you know, this, this is a, a a person who had a past, not just a superhero yes, on page. Exactly, and um, and I uh, I think I'm really excited to see where that goes. So speaking of, um, before we get too far into the weeds, because you're so easy to talk to that we could just do I'm this just immediately and like about Hellions for the entire record call for yeah for five hours. Braddock is not even in. <laughs> uh, no, it's like that's that's Kanon's book, and she's great. But we should save that for a Kanon episode at yes. some point, which I would like to do actually once there's more of her yeah um but uh because i want this podcast to be accessible for uh newbies to the x-men i have pre-recorded um a like almost 15 minute i'm sorry there's a lot of betsy and it's real complicated an almost 15 minute uh character overview which is you know this podcast is called cerebro after charles xavier's like mutant database uh each episode is sort of a file and i want uh people to feel as though they learned something i guess and i'm approaching each character not from an in-universe perspective like you know betsy was born here and then this happened and then this happened but rather from a publication perspective 
So we're going to start with how the character was originally presented. We're going to talk about some behind the scenes stuff. And um, I'm just going to jump right into that. And then we will uh, come back to you for some more chat and uh, get a little deeper into your work on Excalibur, which I'm excited to talk about. X-Men, X-Men. Elizabeth Braddock, called Betsy, is a character with a long and complicated history. She originates in the short-lived 70s Marvel UK series Captain Britain as the titular hero Brian Braddock's twin sister, a supporting character. But over the last 44 years, she has dramatically eclipsed her brother in prominence, first as the X-Man Psylocke and since 2019 as the current Captain Britain. Created by writer Chris Claremont and artist Herb Trimp, Betsy first appears in Captain Britain No. 8 in December 1976. A young woman working first as a charter pilot and then as a fashion model, she has unexplained precognitive visions of the future, which she uses to aid Brian in his work as Captain Britain. She and their older brother Jamie mostly serve as kidnapping fodder, with Brian frequently forced to rescue them both from Dr. Sin or the Red Skull or whoever else has captured them that day. The character first comes into her own under writer Alan Moore and artist Alan Davis in the more popular relaunch of Captain Britain in the early 80s. Here she dyes her blonde hair purple, which has been an iconic design element of the character ever since. Moore establishes that Betsy has blossomed from a precog into a full-blown telepath, and while she's become a successful model, she also now works undercover as an agent of Strike, the British equivalent of the better-known S.H.I.E.L.D. In the 80s Captain Britain stories, Betsy becomes a more integral part of Brian's adventures, which now span the multiverse as the Captain Britain Corps is revealed in a retcon to be a large organization safeguarding the boundaries of infinite realities. She also suffers a series of traumas. She's left reeling by the murder of her boyfriend, Agent of Strike Tom Lennox, in the famous Jasper's Warp storyline. And in a later story after Alan Moore's departure from the book, Brian is briefly replaced by an evil version of himself from another world. The evil Brian attempts to rape Betsy, who kills him with her psychic powers, the first time she has killed another human being, and she finds it difficult to look her Brian in the face for some time afterward. It's established in this run that Betsy and Brian's late father was secretly a native of the mystical Otherworld, also called Avalon, which is the source of Captain Britain's powers. Captain Britain was cancelled in early 1986, and the final arc sets Betsy on a bold new trajectory. Brian goes overseas on a mission for the government, and Betsy is convinced to take his place as a temporary substitute Captain Britain. Her tenure is sadly short-lived, as the supervillain Slaymaster, one of Brian's arch-nemeses, beats her nearly to death and slashes her eyes out. Brian arrives in time to save her life and kill Slaymaster, but it's too late to save her vision. In the final issue, Betsy retires to Switzerland, now blind and using her telepathy to compensate for the loss of her eyes. Enter Chris Claremont, Betsy's original creator, who brings the character over to his established X-Men franchise later that year in October 1986's New Mutants Annual No. 2. Here, in her first appearance in an American comic book, Betsy is established via retcon to be a mutant like the X-Men, this being the source of her previously unexplained psychic powers, which now manifest with a butterfly motif energy signature. Betsy is kidnapped from Switzerland by the alien despot Mojo an interdimensional slaver obsessed with television, who fits Betsy with new bionic eyes and brainwashes her into becoming the Psylocke, his most powerful and favored slave. After several months as Mojo's corrupted servant, Betsy is rescued and restored to sanity by Captain Britain and the New Mutants. She decides to remain at the Xavier Mansion to strengthen her powers to better ensure she is never victimized again. Betsy quickly demonstrates her value to the X-Men during the Mutant Massacre, an event that turns the mansion into a makeshift refugee camp and hospital. The team has no telepath at that time, so Betsy becomes essential for communication, and then proves herself more than just another house guest when the mansion is attacked by the marauder Sabretooth, who wants to pick off the survivors of the massacre while the X-Men are away. 
Alone, Betsy risks her own life to trap Sabretooth and herself far away from the injured survivors and the medical personnel tending to them. Though she's beaten and sliced up pretty bad, Betsy ultimately survives by outsmarting Sabretooth and reads his mind to learn details about the Marauder's mysterious employer, the man the X-Men will come to know as Mr. Sinister. Wolverine, impressed by her bravery, nominates Betsy to join the X-Men, an offer she accepts, reclaiming the Mojoverse slave named Psylocke as her official codename. Psylocke quickly becomes a key member of the X-Men, unaware that her bionic eyes are constantly transmitting video footage back to Mojo and his right-hand woman, the body-shaping sorceress Spiral. Those hidden cameras are deactivated in the 1988 event Fall of the Mutants, where Betsy is killed in Dallas alongside the rest of the X-Men. Sacrificing their lives to help their ally Forge defeat the being called the Adversary, the X-Men are resurrected by Roma, the Omniversal Guardian, one of the rulers of Otherworld who first empowered Brian Braddock as Captain Britain. Grateful for Betsy's service, Roma entrusts her with the Siege Perilous, a relic that enables anyone to pass through a mystical portal and be reborn with no memories to a new life. The X-Men decide to take the opportunity of their apparent death to begin operating undercover and establish a new base of operations in Australia. In England, believing his sister is dead, Brian and his girlfriend Megan form the new superhero team Excalibur with former X-Men Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, and Rachel Summers. During the Australian period, Betsy is characterized as an especially pragmatic and morally flexible member of the team, believing that sometimes killing and dirty tricks are necessary to succeed. It's Betsy who thus ultimately moves the X-Men into their next era. In the fall of 1989, she experiences a precognitive vision of the team being slaughtered by their enemies, the Reavers, and telepathically convinces her friends to enter the Siege Perilous and escape this fate. At this point, the character of Psylocke undergoes her most significant and ultimately controversial transformation. The amnesiac Betsy is deposited by the Siege Perilous on an island near China, where she is discovered by the international Japanese crime syndicate The Hand. Their leader, Matsuo Sarayaba, conspires with Chinese supervillain The Mandarin and Betsy's old tormentors Mojo and Spiral to brainwash Betsy into becoming The Hand's most powerful assassin, Lady Mandarin. As part of this process, Spiral reshapes Betsy's flesh to make her look East Asian, the better to blend into the criminal underworld of Hong Kong. As Lady Mandarin, Betsy becomes a master martial artist and develops the ability to focus her telepathic power into a psionic weapon, which she calls her psychic knife, the focused totality of her psychic power. Wolverine and his new sidekick Jubilee discover Lady Mandarin and, after realizing who she really is, manage to undo the hand's brainwashing and restore Betsy's memories. Though she's Psylocke once more, Betsy retains the martial arts expertise she gained as Lady Mandarin and continues to use the psychic knife, which becomes her standard offensive power going forward. Claremont intended for Betsy's physical transformation to shatter like an illusion when she regained her memories, but he liked the way Korean-American artist Jim Lee drew Lady Mandarin, so he decided to let Psylocke stay transformed until such time as Lee eventually left the book. Conflict with editorial, however, led to Claremont's sudden and unexpected departure from Marvel soon afterward in 1991, after 16 years on the X-Men. Betsy Braddock would remain transformed into an East Asian woman for nearly 30 years of publication, from December 1989 to August 2018. In a messy retcon that creates a lot of continuity errors with Claremont's original story, but ultimately was probably for the best, in 1993, new writer Fabian Nicieza establishes that Spiral didn't simply alter Betsy. She actually swapped Betsy's mind into the body of an existing woman, the Japanese assassin Kanon, Matsuo Sarayaba's lover and professional rival, who had been rendered brain dead after a duel between them went wrong. Spiral, feeling mischievous, intermingled the two women's psyches instead of just switching their bodies, leaving both of them confused as to who was the real Psylocke. Ultimately, Kanon, in Betsy's European body, takes the new codename Revanche, while Betsy, in Kanon's Asian body, continues to operate as Psylocke. 
Both serve with the X-Men simultaneously until Revanche contracts the terminal legacy virus and convinces Matsuo to mercy kill her. Betsy's original body dies with Revanche, and though her mind is fully restored, she is left stuck in Kanon's body. Psylocke's popularity with fans exploded after she became a more action-oriented and sexually provocative character in her new ninja design, and she quickly became Marvel's most prominent Asian superhero, a dubious distinction for a character who was actually a white woman trapped in a dead Japanese woman's body. As the X-Men became more popular than ever before in the early 90s, many casual fans had no idea Psylocke had ever been anything other than an Asian character. The overhauled Psylocke is a core member of the X-Men throughout the 90s, and enters into a romantic relationship with original X-Men Warren Worthington III, codenamed Angel, or sometimes Archangel. It's complicated, and we'll save that for his episode at some point. Eventually, Betsy gains new shadow powers from the mystical dimension called the Crimson Dawn after a duel with her old enemy Sabretooth leaves her near death. She then traps the evil telepath the Shadow King in her mind, understanding she must never use her telepathy again lest she free him. With the help of Jean Grey, she develops telekinetic powers instead to replace her telepathy. This power switch-up coincides with The Revolution, a franchise-wide event in 2000 where Chris Claremont made his highly anticipated return to the X-Men after almost a decade's absence. But his new story was not very well received by fans, and the lead title quickly rebooted again into New X-Men written by Grant Morrison. Betsy briefly returns to England in Ben Robb's 2001 Excalibur miniseries, where she helps Brian ascend to the throne of Otherworld. Shortly thereafter, Claremont takes her with him to a new title, Extreme X-Men, and there, reportedly unhappy with the myriad changes to the character since his departure, he has her killed in battle by the new villain Vargas. Claremont's plan was to bring her back in short order with a back-to-basics power set, potentially in her original European body. But Marvel Editor-in-Chief Joe Quesada had recently implemented a new policy forbidding any dead characters from being resurrected. Psylocke was therefore taken off the board for a few years. In 2005, Claremont was finally allowed to resurrect Betsy, in a story where her older brother Jamie Braddock, now an insane reality-warping evil mutant who has caused a lot of trouble for their brother Brian over the years, alters time and space to bring her back from the dead stronger than ever. For reasons not really explained, but probably due to the fact that Asian Psylocke had become the more popular version of the character, Jamie brings Betsy back in Kanon's body rather than her own. As her death had freed the Shadow King, she's ultimately free to use both her classic telepathy and her newer telekinesis in concert. After an ill-fated adventure with Brian and a new Excalibur team gets her lost between universes, Betsy briefly joins the reality-hopping team, the Exiles. She's brought back to her own Earth by the evil Sisterhood of Mutants, brainwashed into serving them and magically restored to her original body. For, like, one issue. By the end of that storyline, she's back in Kanon's body, setting up the 2009 solo Psylocke miniseries by Christopher Yost, in which her original body is destroyed by the hand, and Betsy ties up loose ends with Matsuo Sarayaba, ultimately mercy-killing him as he once did for Kanon. Reuniting with her ex-boyfriend Warren as part of the Black Ops team X-Force under writer Rick Remender, Betsy struggles with his corruption by Apocalypse and is ultimately forced to kill him. He gets better. At one point, she has a whirlwind romance with her teammate Phantomax, and reveals she's bisexual when the part of his personality she loves winds up split off into a female body called Cluster. In my favorite story from the X-Force years, Brian learns of Betsy's bloody murderous service with the team and summons her to Otherworld, in part to chastise her. There she is forced to kill their brother Jamie to prevent him from destroying the multiverse in the future, and does it by telepathically compelling Brian to snap Jamie's neck after Brian is unable to bring himself to do it. Over the years, Betsy's time with X-Force tests her moral compass and her ability to forgive. In one memorable revamp of the book by writer Sam Humphreys, she leads the team and recruits her longtime arch-nemesis Spiral after the sorceress is cast out by Mojo. 
Then comes all the Inhumans versus X-Men stuff, and frankly, this podcast is going to just skip over that period entirely whenever we get to it. Trust me, you are not missing anything. Moving on. In the 2018 miniseries Mystery in Madripoor by Jim Zub, Betsy is apparently killed by the psychic vampire Sapphire Styx. In reality, Betsy's disembodied spirit is trapped alongside Styx's other victims. She uses her telepathic force of will to channel those lost souls and destroy Styx from within, using the resulting energy to telekinetically reconstitute a new version of her original European body. Now, with naturally purple hair. In a twist, it's revealed that somehow this act also resurrected Kanon, who finally regains control of the body Betsy has at last left behind. Betsy travels to England to reunite with her brother Brian and his wife Megan, who are thrilled to finally see the Betsy they once knew return to them, and meets her young niece Maggie for the first time. After over a decade of stories with X-Force, Betsy rejoins the main X-Men team and remains with them until the 2019 franchise-wide soft reboot, Dawn of X, which significantly revamps the character once again. In the newest iteration of Excalibur, written by Teeny Howard, Betsy is made to take Brian's place as Captain Britain when he is mystically corrupted by Morgan Le Fay, who has seized control of Otherworld. Though Betsy eventually frees him from the sorceress's influence, with the unexpected help of their resurrected brother Jamie, Brian feels unworthy to carry the mantle any longer and encourages Betsy to remain Captain Britain going forward. Embracing her new identity, Betsy cedes the codename Psylocke to Kanon, the woman whose body she inhabited for so many years, and with whose hands she has killed countless people. Only time will tell what becomes of Betsy Braddock next, but she's set to play a major role in the upcoming event Ten of Swords, written by Jonathan Hickman and Teeny Howard, in which she comes into conflict with Opal Luna Saturnine, one of the most enduring and memorable characters from the 80s relaunch of Captain Britain. As a big fan of those classic Captain Britain stories, and in particular a big fan of the character of Saturnine, I am very excited to see what's coming. X-Men, X-Men. So, uh, as I was just saying in the in the end there, the tail end of the character overview, I what a am comprehensive a... overview, fantastically done. <laughs> Thank you. I I worked pretty hard on that. I I was sort of like, why am I doing Betsy first? Because she is one of the more complicated. <laughs> you could have started X-Men with Cable, characters. I guess, if you wanted to make. It I more guess, right? Or like. I guess I could have jumped right in with Maddie Pryor, but um, (laughs) I I really, uh, I think I wanted to do it because it is a good sort of sampler of how complicated and intricate and Byzantine these characters can become over, you know, 40, 50 years of publication and particularly um, sort of Chris Claremont's favorites like Betsy or Kitty Pryde or Rachel Summers tend to have these really complicated characters. storylines because he wrote the book for 16 years you know on like completely uninterrupted so and if i may say more you know grant morrison type crap uh it's it's really interesting because you know byzantine is such a great word like so much of this stuff is so it it almost in a religious text sense at times comes down to interpretation. Like you have fans who argue like religious scholars over like, well, no, she said it like this. Well, no, the look on her face meant this. And it's like, well, I interpreted that, you know, very differently. And it, 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 it's absolutely like religious texts, the way fans debate the meanings of singular panels. For sure. And much like, um, you know, that and that goes back to what I was sort of saying about like the hero cults. I mean, I was a classics major back in the day. And, um, you know, people who are talking about Heracles or Theseus or whoever, are they decide which stories are relevant to what they're talking about. And uh, 
it's good that you actually mentioned Grant Morrison because I always have really enjoyed. I would say after the Claremont run, my favorite run is the Grant Morrison New X Men. Yes. Um, and my favorite thing that I think Grant does, and I was very resistant to this as a teenager when New X Men was coming out, um, because I was like a total nerd continuity head who had read all the Claremont stuff. Uh, but I do think that his approach to continuity is smart, which is like everything's continuity. Everything is canon and nothing is canon. So yes. like use what not not a, no pun on canon intended. <laughs> but I think that um, basically like that's the way to approach it. If I were writing Emma Frost, for example, uh, who is my favorite X-Men character in terms of, you know, in the modern age. And Grant really did that. I mean, he really re reinvented that character. In an, and we'll talk about that someday in another episode. Um, but if I were writing her, you know, quite honestly, I would just pretend that Inhumans versus X-Men never happened. And I do think that that's kind of what people are doing. And I think that that's smart because no fan enjoyed that book uh, in terms of what it did with Emma. And... You know, we don't need to go there necessarily, and you need you you don't need to comment because I know you know you 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 probably are are friends with the uh, the writers of that book. But I'm just saying that's an example of like uh, you can choose to sort of have a personal canon that makes sense for how you envision the character. And I think that when you're approaching it as a writer, that's sort of an important thing to do because otherwise there there are so many you know it's almost sixty years now of of history with these characters. Totally. And it's very easy to get overwhelmed. I think your approach is exactly right um, with regards to, like, the, the what I, or at least what I take, you know, is kind of the Morrisonian approach to it, which is the idea of, like, um, I, when I'm writing a character, I'm, I'm kind of making a personal argument. Like, it's like when you do, like, a, any sort of, if you've ever written, like, an essay that's, like, a, a critical argument, you know, in a way, what I'm doing is I'm saying, this is who I think this character is. Here's textual evidence to support it. I don't need to provide all the textual evidence against it. Like, that's not how an argument works. You can suppose, like a philosophical argument, you can have a section that says, here are some arguments against. And that's also a writing exercise where I challenge it and I say, well, the character wouldn't handle this well for these reasons. And I use textual evidence to show what they do poorly or, you know, to show, uh, to challenge them in various ways. But like, I very much view writing a character as making an argument and I view everything that's ever happened to them or surrounding them as uh, the wealth of, of, an herb garden that I am to go pick from and make something delicious. <laughs> yeah. So I guess like what I would sort of ask is when you were, um, well, first of all, how did uh, the idea for Excalibur come about and, and sort of the, did you pitch it initially? Like I want to write Betsy Braddock or what was the, what was the initial inroad? Uh, honestly, the character that was at the center of the idea that became Excalibur was Apocalypse. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and it was because we kind of got sent this, you know, high level uh, Bible. And this was like the very first X Room. This was before House and Powers were out. This was, you know, the planning stuff for, for Dawn of X. Mm -hmm. like, These like very first meetings when we were conceiving of books, we, those of us that came to the room came to the room with um, pitches, but like almost none of those pitches. Uh, are like the same as what came to the room because it's not, you know, it's collaborative work. Everything. Right. No, of course it's collaborative. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, what I came to the room with was basically, you know, after reading everything was this idea that I was like, well, two things, you know, one, uh, 
you know, what happened to the boy who got everything he wanted? He lived happily ever after. Uh, but I'm like, that's it? Like, is that the... Like, basically, I was like, is this the mm-hmm. end for Apocalypse? Like, if mutants win... <laughs> right, because this, this is all he has ever longed right. for, right? Is, so, like, is what, Krakoa. Yeah, so, like, what do we do? And then uh, I ended up... And I, I can't... I, I guess if I really had to, I could trace all of the, the mental gymnastics, but I won't block no, it No, I mean, it. You, can, you can streamline it for yeah, me. Yeah, I, 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 I don't need less, you, I don't need to break it all down for yeah. this, but... Uh, Whatever you choose to give us, I will happily take. Yeah. Uh, I came around to the idea that, um, you know, Apocalypse uh, would want to reclaim things that had been lost to mutant kind, uh, like the idea of of certain aspects of of culture. And like one of it was that, yeah, like human human cultures have these like, you know, proto early times where... um, or even, you know, today there are there are many human cultures in this earth that are still um, very magical. You know, that use you know the mm-hmm. idea of, of magic as a a, a and I, t- I speak of magic in an anthropological sense, like a function of their society. I don't mean like whether or not you believe in things you cannot see. I mean like if you are an anthropologist and you discuss magic, it is a thing that has a function in a society. Means right, as a that. stage in as a stage in like religious. Um... Yes. Not necessarily development because it can stop there and that's fine. But like I- I- the difference between sort of magic, religion, science, like yes. are there in anthropology and anthropological studies and, and in classics, those are sort of viewed as different um, potential evolutions of the approach to the divine, essentially. Yes. And uh, a lot of people who do this kind of um, anthropological slash occult theory talk about the idea that uh the over specification of things like magic used to do everything right like the right. the magic user could both cure your cold and fix your crops and also birth your baby um and also like curse your neighbor or whatever now it's like you go to a special doctor to birth your baby and someone else for your crops and and arg- there's an argument that certain cultural aspects are lost in that right you're not going to the pharmacist down the hill right okay so doesn't this all sound like great fun x-men comics <laughs> Right, so then, like, let's pivot to how that became a book about Betsy Braddock. Right, so the way this became a book about Betsy, ba- Betsy Braddock is I talked about this stuff for hours and hours. Uh, uh, no, really, and then and we came to the room, and um, I had pitched the book, and I, I called it something else. Um, but when we got to the room, one of the things we got into really quickly was that they were like, we want to use, try to use names of old existing Like classic titles, yeah. yeah. And so I... That with that, I kind of read the pitch, and, and Jonathan and Jordan were like, well, that's Excalibur then. Of you course, know? yeah. And then at the same time, all three of us were like, because one of the things that we had kind of started the day with was like, what characters are on the board and why? And, mm-hmm. you know, if are there people on the board we want to prioritize? You know, who what characters have been through a big thing lately? And one of them was, you know, the, the development with Betsy. And so it was kind of like, that's Excalibur. And then at the same time, we were all like, well, that's what we do with Betsy. Um, right. And then instantly, I mean, it's so... You guys are so smart. Like, just to say it again, it really, it was the most elegant solution to a 30-year problem. And I Thank am you. so, so happy to have both characters. All I want now is giant size X-Men, um, Psylocke and Captain Britain. And I want Dodderman to draw it and you to write it. And I think that someone should do that. And I'm just putting it out into the universe and, you know, free idea. <laughs> I mean, it would, it would be a blast. Honestly, though, like one goal I really have uh, is to co-write a Betsy and Conan story with an Asian American woman, like um, that would or be an amazing. Asian woman writer, like someone who, you know, we can, um, someone who I can, uh, we can sit and, and, and I can, you know, work with a friend. There are many 
Asian women writers, even Absolutely, among the X-Men, comics, who are yeah. incredible that I would love to work mm-hmm. with. Um, but yeah, the the idea of like getting to to sit and have someone who I can sit with and we can be like, let's have let's have conversations in, in this book. Yeah, let's hash out all the weird stuff about these women. Like yeah, the fact that- like let's talk about how it made you feel as a fan and mm-hmm. let's talk about what I observed, you know, and, and the mistakes that I made. Because I, I, I write Betsy as someone who is privileged and makes mistakes. That's well, right. about her that I enjoy writing is that she is very, very privileged and I enjoy... She's British nobility. Yeah. I mean, you know, it doesn't get much more Silver Spoon than, like, the daughter of, like, Lord Braddock. Right. I mean, she, and it's, it's, it's like, the most, like, you know, like, Anglo princess stuff possible. Yeah, it's like, I, I became a cool ninja for a while and was, like, a sexy dragon lady type character. And, and then I got uh, bored, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so now that's over. I mean, it is... That was and a phase, I think that, yeah. The thing is that, like, I've talked about this with you, but I, you know, I do like 90s Betsy. I mean, I'm not, I'm not by any means, like, you know, a hater of Ninja Psylocke. It's just not my preference in Psylocke. The part of your recap where you're like, you know, it's because of how incredible Jim Lee drew her was part of why that happened. Yeah. Absolutely correct. Those 90s Psylocke comics, if you want to see little baby Jim Lee just do absolute fire like go back and read those minis i mean they are gorgeous the two designs i think of with jim lee always like when someone says jim lee the two designs i always think of are that outfit for psylocke the blue you know leotard outfit and then um rogues unitard with the leather jacket those are two absolutely brilliant outfits and like i um Rogue is another one, and I'll get to this whenever I get to her episode, but she's another one where the 90s version of the character is not my favorite. I really love her in the 80s, and the 90s stories, I think she got kind of bogged down in the Gambit romance, which was just, like, not really my point of interest, which I know is an unpopular opinion. Uh, <laughs> I like them now. I like I like how they're, they are they are now, but at the time, I was like, eh, isn't, like, I don't want Rogue moping about a boy. That's, like, right. not what I'm here for. But the design was so smart. I mean, it just there's a reason that she popped so much on the cartoon and in part it's because the voice actress was incredible but also it's just like that is such a a fun simple but also a little intricate and weird cosplayable easily design um and that's what that's what Jim Lee did really well in that in that period and Psylocke is is a you know he drew her brilliantly and I do think the fact that Claremont was collaborating with an Asian artist makes it a little bit more complicated as a story sure. right? in terms of the 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 politics that the racial politics of it um you know now Claremont obviously is by his I, I would say by his own omission probably like a big Japanophile I mean he loves yeah. Japan his characters go to Japan a lot so you know is there like an Orientalism aspect? Sure. It was the eighties. You know, we hadn't really addressed that particularly yet uh, in terms of like white people talking about it in mainstream pop culture conversation. But I do think that it it is notable that he was like, that was, and this was only revealed recently in an interview he did um, that was interesting, but he was like, that was only supposed to last like a couple issues, but Jim really enjoyed drawing her and he made her look so cool that I was just like, okay, we'll just keep this until, you know, he was probably, he was like, Jim would probably only be on the book for like a year because most artists were only on the book for about a year or two. So it, you know, it just, it event, but by sort of accidents of, of the out of story stuff, it ended up 
lasting a really long time and just becoming the way because of the Capcom fighting games and the Sega Genesis game yeah. and and her brief guest appearances in the cartoon. Like that's just the Psylocke that people knew. Um, well, and, and part of it, I feel like, um, you know, part of why I'm really grateful for the way the, you know, the the Madripoor retcon handled them is that it's the way that I think um, it's the thing that I think if I had been asked to handle it, it would have been the thing that would have been what I would have built that concept around, which would have been, look, this isn't, isn't just a body made to look like, like this was someone's body. Like even if the original thing. Oh, the, the, the Nicieza retcon you mean where it's like, this is a real person. Yeah. Yeah. This is not a, a, a shell or a morphed body or this is a person. This is a woman who something was taken from her and like, right. Um, the, you know, because that I, that I think was the most important aspect that I've been really grateful for in the in the retcon is that is that Kanon is, is is a figure on Krakoa with a life, and is someone yeah, who she's a I, person who exists. I have been thinking about the eventual um, the eventuality of what has to be discussed between her and Betsy for right. all like since I started writing Excalibur, and it's never been something I put off it's been something I've been building to well there's that great moment early in Excalibur where they sort of see each other like across the way and like it's just this very awkward eye contact moment and then Conan just like walks away like yeah. we're not having this conversation I thought that was great thank you and there's you know a direct line between that and like the conversation in in the you know Excalibur 7 and 8 like yeah you know, Warwolf adventure wherein Richter is like you you know I am a a brown gay Catholic guy, so there's a lot of things I see that you don't see. Like, right, having Betsy having to to chew on her, the knowledge of her privilege to me is part of the realistic way in which she would deal with it. Right? Like, yeah, I want superhero comics to be a warm and welcoming place full of heroes and they are but i think it would be disingenuous and ignoring betsy's privilege to have her not have this like complicated guilt that makes her not want to talk about it like is she being spoiled and white and avoidant about it absolutely because she is right braddock <laughs> yeah and my favorite and my favorite thing about betsy and like why you know because so emma is my favorite x-man now but on some level that's because the modern emma frost is a lot like the 80s Betsy Braddock. I mean, in terms of who Psylocke was to the X-Men mm -hmm. in that Claremont run, she was the sneaky one. She was the one who was willing to kill people. She was the one who would use her telepathy in unscrupulous ways if, like, Storm was being too honorable about things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that was her role. She, was push she would push the envelope. And the Siege Perilous storyline is actually really great because she does end up suffering the most from the siege perilous incident um and it's she's the one who forces them all to do it and there's that great page where you know havoc is like i absolutely won't do this this is insane and she just and, and they've sort of had a vague flirtation mm -hmm. but like a hate a love hate like we don't like each other kind of flirtation over the course of the australian period and she just basically telepathically forces him to do it and she does it she gives him a kiss and like seduces him and then 
like pushes him through the portal basically right and then she follows after and she's the one who then because of everything that happens with Matsuo and um, oh and speaking of pronunciations I want to apologize for any Japanese speakers who listen to the character overview because I am confident that I butchered Sarayaba all of the stuff with Matsuo and the stuff with the hand it's almost like her punishment for having forced all of her friends to 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 give up their lives you yeah. know um and i don't necessarily believe that everything has to have a moral but it does feel like a good like you know thing for the character in terms of her full arc that's uh, that's part of what writing a character is you know it's just exactly. it's looking back at those those things and trying to find um connections and challenges for them that maybe haven't been explored before right like looking back at Absolutely. that and saying like hey you know to me it looks like this was a a punishment for that like has is this something has she ever discussed that or brought that up before how right. can we give her you know and how do we make it more than just her you know getting sad and drunk and telling this to her friends you know can we structure yeah. an arc or a story or a journey for her around that connection that no one else has ever made before like that's that's the journey of writing a character that's been around for this long you know yeah, and the the 2009 uh, Psylocke miniseries approached that a little bit, but like she was still in Kanon's body, so there was only so much right. that could be done. And I think that there's a rich like vein to tap into now, especially because as you note, like the Nisie is a retcon that creates Kanon, like it does do I mean, first of all, in terms of like problematic ideas about race and colonialism and everything else that Psylocke kind of does dredge up by her her nature. Um, I think that it would be a way worse if we were looking back and we were like, she spent 30 years in yellow face, like magic yellow face, but yellow, like it's right. good that it's an actual body that like existed. You know what I mean? But that then creates the colonial sort of issue of like, this is a white British woman who took a Japanese woman's body and she didn't take it on purpose. It's something that was done to her, but she gets to keep it. You know, and so I think that, I mean, I've talked about this with you, but I really, when I say that I liked 90s Betsy, the thing I liked most was I loved Betsy and Warren's relationship. Um, yeah. And it occurred to me reading Excalibur that Warren has only ever known Betsy really in Kanon's body and that they dated while she was in Kanon's body. And so like he has never had sex, for example, with Betsy in her own body. No Things comment, like that. <laughs> okay. Well, I'd love to address that at some point on the pages of these comments. And I'd love to know what Kanon thinks about Warren, this guy who like was having sex with her body while she wasn't there. Like things like, I just think that there's a lot of really interesting stuff that could be done there because again it's no one's fault like spiral did this to both of them so it's not you know it's not like betsy stole her body but at the same time this is a fucked up thing that happened to to both of them and the power dynamic is complicated well and i think one of the other big things to remember about all of this is when we zoom out and we get out of the page and we look at it as a book that goes into the hands of people what it ultimately did was create a really prominent Asian character yes. and in a visual medium where we can see her kicking ass. And the worst thing to do would have been if there had, if, if, if the retcon had had to be such where it was like, well, we just put Betsy back and then we right. lose. No, that I was so, so you know? happy that she, that, that Kanon got to be a real X-Man yeah. and got to be Psylocke. So because she is, is a retcon kind of saves us you in know? a way because it's like, yeah. 
she's she was a woman who had something taken from her who is a character that we can explore and you can uh read all about her just looking amazing and wrecking face in the pages of zeb wells and steven segovia's <laughs> which i backed up promoting instead of my own book yeah no i will say i kind of hope I kind of hope she goes back to the purple hair eventually just because it's such a I think it's such a cool look. But I do I did laugh because it occurred to me. I, I have thought this for many years that um, it must have been a real downer for Betsy to have gone from dying blonde hair purple to then having to dye black hair purple, which would require you to bleach it outrageously first. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was already a bit of a stretch, the idea that she would maintain that lovely lavender hair color while like on the run in Australia. But it made a little more sense when it was just something she could slap on. I can't, I have to now imagine that Conan. Yeah, no, which is a great, a genius a bit from, from uh, Jim Zub. But I would, I have to imagine that Conan got her body back and was like, Oh my God, my hair is fucking fried. What have you been doing to my hair? <laughs> she just like shakes because, her head and starts. Yeah. Over. Cause like, I mean, we both have dark hair, like you and, and oh, I, you know, obviously Conan's hair, hair is darker than ours, but Yeah, I just like that's a lot of effort to get that color going. But that said, I'm sure there's like a mutant hairdresser on Krakoa who could do it if she decides she wants to go back to the to the look. I always have Megan in Excalibur. I always have her like changing her hair color and stuff randomly. Why wouldn't you change it to match your outfit? Megan is one of my all time favorites. I actually so Excalibur, the classic Excalibur in the 80s was my like favorite of those Claremont books when I was reading my dad's back issues, which is so weird. I know. But I also I loved fantasy. Uh, I loved Alan Davis's art, particularly. Mm -hmm. And I um. I mean, I will say like the two sort of X-Men, Betsy is very close to my heart in one respect because the two, and it's interesting because I'm not usually that into blondes, but like the two homosexual awakenings that I had, like reading the X-Men as like a young child was like first that one um, John Byrne panel from Dark Phoenix Saga where like Warren comes down from the ceiling, like in his tank top with like the (laughs) chest hair spilling out and like Candy Southern's like making them a martini or whatever. Um, And then... (laughs) Uh, the second is like there's a whole Brian in a speedo like with Megan thing that was just like really wild. So just yep. these two men who are closely associated with Betsy Braddock were like, oh, hmm, I think I'm gay. And thank you for that, um, John Byrne and Alan Davis. Um, I did a big, big Excalibur reread before I wrote the book, obviously. I have to assume because you have so many great Easter eggs in there for fans of the original book. But like the the I have to say that when it comes to to sweet faced heroes with just incredible bodies, Marcus Toe absolutely gives Alan a run for his money in that. Oh respect. yeah, no, I'm 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 very into Marcus's art. The the thing I re- like for my last big reread, just being like Brian Braddock's butt is like astonishing. You could bounce a farthing off of it. <laughs> Yeah, like bef- long before, long before the Marvel Cinematic Universe gave Captain America that butt, Captain Britain had that butt. It was, yeah. it was like it was a true butt situation, like Nicholas Scott level butt. Yeah, absolutely. Going on, absolutely. Um, I, I, I think that I've always said that um, Alan Davis is like the only straight man I can think of who draws men that hot. Like I, I. <laughs> Because I think, like, Phil Jimenez draws incredibly sexy men. Well, but it's like, yeah. Phil is sure. gay, so that makes sense, right? I mean, he also draws incredibly beautiful women. But, like, I feel like a lot of the time men are sort of less... Um, less Soft and know, appealing sexy. and yeah, receptive. Right. And, and yeah, I think that there are a lot of 
uh, there are a lot of other these sort of gay artists now and and female artists who are you know attracted to men who have done great. But Alan Davis, man, I don't know what it is. It's always it's always real high quality stuff. So what to go back? Um, because we keep. I, I lo- I'm loving the tangents and this is the thing. This podcast is going to get tangential because it's the X-Men and the X-Men are something that you just sort of talk around sometimes because there's so much. There's a lot. To go back, um, you were talking about your reread and we were talking about the classic Captain Britain and other stories involving Betsy, involving, you know, quote unquote, Asian Betsy. When you were approaching Excalibur and sort of reframing Betsy for a new generation, for new readers, because that's the idea behind Dawn of X in a lot of ways, which stories were sort of your watchwords? Because she has had such a a varied run from, you know, her original time in Captain Britain through her time with the X-Men, through all of the years with X-Force, you know, up till now. Like what, what sort of through lines did you want to bring through what are your favorite storylines um i really i really love her appearance uh her appearances in strike um with those characters the i miss them and all them and yeah allison double should come back uh allison double oh, wasn't that like her bestie yeah allison double should come back um we haven't seen allison in like literally f- like 30 40 yeah years, a long so time back. uh there's a lot of characters <laughs> who i'm like man you should come back uh I really, really love her, the whole first story where she joins the X-Men, um, that annual, yeah. and the uncanny issues uh, right after it. I, I love, I love that whole era. Um, and I do really, really love uh, uh, Rick Remender's Uncanny X-Force. Um, with, uh, that really inspired a lot of the relationship between Betsy and Apocalypse in my run. Um, there's a, there's stuff yeah, in my Excalibur run that like, there, I mean, there is stuff in that run that is, you know, uh, someone like outright clocked it on Twitter. And finally I was like, you see me. But it's like, you know, the whole, I, won't, I, don't, I hope, I don't know if you're re- listening to this and you don't read Excalibur. Anyway, there's a point in my run where Betsy asks Apocalypse to spare a, a baby something. And it's like a very deliberate callback mm-hmm. to Uncanny X-Force. Yes. And like, I, I don't know. I was, I, the their relationship like their first interaction in Excalibur one from me kind of ongoing that that hit that where I hit the ground running on their relationship was very much inspired by Uncanny X-Force yeah no that makes a lot of sense I think that for me part of it is I um so I was like a lifelong X fan and then I felt very betrayed by the decimation um the decimation to me after House of M felt like it's sort of stole all of the things I loved most about the X-Men, which was most of the characters because I've always liked the sort of C-listers more. That's always been kind of my thing in comics. I love the, the, you know, the number one sort of like A-list characters are are not usually my favorites um, with a few exceptions like Emma and and Storm and Betsy. But, um, you know, I, I felt like a lot of great characters were lost, but I also more importantly felt like the the sort of minority metaphor that is to me the heart of the X-Men um, got really lost because once, you know, it's only 198 people, that's like, that's a lecture hall. That's not a subculture. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it just wasn't the book that I wanted. So I fell off for quite a while. And I think that most of the, the big uncanny x-ray stuff sort of happened in the wake of like second coming right and that just was when i was not and i've i've now gone back and read but it was not i don't have that sort of like primal attachment to it that you would have if you had been reading it as it came out you know what i mean totally well and it also yeah like it it, i did that was one of the first 
like I think that was one of the first X-Men books that I read as it was coming out. Yeah, um, I mean, that makes I, a lot I'd of sense. I'd been reading Marvel stuff for a long time by then, but, um, and I'd read, like, some big, like, X-Men events and stuff, and I'd read, like, I'd read other stuff, but, like, the that, I think Uncanny X-Force was, like, and it was because my friend Alex was like, this is really, really good. And I was like, okay, I'll check it out. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that might have been the first X-Men book I was, like, pulling and was like, oh, man, like, I'm really up on this. And I, I think that's probably where I first decided, like, oh, I really like Betsy a lot. <laughs> like, yeah. That was probably where I first was like, oh, I love her. Like, And then I, like, I remember going back and, like, you know, reading Captain Britain stuff and being like, like, she just, like, kind of falling in love with, like, the, the very... Mm huge range of her strange history like I think that's one of the things about Betsy that I have the most fun with is that for I feel like 20 years she's been a ninja she's an awesome ninja and she learned a lot of cool ninja stuff but she also is like a fairy princess you know like right no and what I love about uh, what I love about what you're doing with her in Excalibur particularly now that she's Captain Britain is like and she so much of what Betsy does, I mean, she was a model, right? Like mm-hmm. she's about sort of exterior appearances. And I was, th- as I was writing the character overview, I was thinking a lot about Uncanny X-Force actually, because it's a really dark book. Um, and she goes to really, really dark places. I mean, toward the end in like one of those final, not remembers, but like one of those final X-Force runs, like she's like, I'm addicted to killing. The only way I can feel is like, fucking people and she's like really you know messed up well and the whole other world stuff in that run too is it, which that's my Jamie, favorite from yeah, that's my great. favorite yeah that's and my favorite it, thing from any Greg of that Tachini stuff does like the art for that run and it's beautiful it's beautiful it's absolutely so stunning pretty, yeah um but uh you know what's interesting is now that she's back in her body and she's captain britain part of her it feels to me reading Excalibur as just a reader that she's kind of like, okay, it's 1986 again. I mean like sliding time scale, obviously, mm-hmm. but she's kind of like, everything's fine. Everything that happened to me when I was canon is like a bad dream. Almost. <laughs> you know what I mean? That was someone and else's life. Yeah, exactly. Like canon did those things, which is why I like that canon is alive to be like, actually, no, you did those things mm-hmm. and I'm not responsible for them. Exactly. If you shirk your responsibility to it, what does that say about me right. and my lack of agency? That is exactly. That is like so much of the core of that argument. Yes. So I love that she's like, you know, when she was in Kanon's body, um, this is actually something I, I talked about once with um, with a, a pro uh, a, a, who was at Marvel at the time who uh, is of Asian descent. And I don't know if like they want me to, to say who they were, so I won't, but you know, we were talking about Psylocke and about um, how this was around when mystery and Madripoor was coming out. And I was like, I feel like they, they tried to fix the messiness of Psylocke by having Betsy get like really into Japanese culture and like wearing kimonos and like using a psychic katana and other stuff. And I'm not actually sure that that made it better. And this person was like, no, it made it worse actually, because it, it just underlined that it's like not really her culture or her life but it makes sense that she would be like okay this is who I am now I'm like this I'm this psychic ninja I'm gonna go all in and it makes just as much sense that once she's back to being herself that she'll be like well now I'm a knight and she like has a sword and shield and she's like I am you know a knight of Avalon and it's about the physical sort of trappings and what I'm interested in is seeing sort of 
I'm just really excited to see what happens in Ten of Swords and to see wh what's coming next for the character because I have to imagine that that's sort of a state of denial that can only last so long and that soon enough she's going to have to face the fact that actually for a long time, I mean, it's a sliding time scale, so let's say maybe it was five years or something, for a long time she was this other person who did terrible, terrible things. Right. And she needs to accept that and, and sort of holistically understand that that's part of who she is. And you can move on and become a better person. Guilt is not always the most useful emotion. It's kind of a fundamentally selfish emotion, right? Because you're dwelling rather than doing something productive. Right. It and blocks I think accountability. That, right. And I think that it's more interesting to see her go like, okay, I'm Captain Britain now. I'm like an important hero. I'm not just like one of the X-Men. This is a legacy. This is a big deal. Like I have to be someone. I have to be representative of my country even as she's like also a citizen of Krakoa, so it's complicated. Well, sure. And if you kick back on the island with everyone else and have a tiki drink, then you have to think about everything. Right. And I think that that is a more interesting story. I think that having her come to terms with what she's done and move forward to become a better person is is interesting. And the thing is, like what I like about Betsy and what I think is interesting about Brian thinking that he can't, that he doesn't deserve to be Captain Britain anymore because of what happened early in Excalibur. Um is that, you know, by the by moral standards, Betsy doesn't deserve this at all. Uh, and Betsy even says that, you know, she would have taken the sword, right? Which is another part of, of Betsy's personality that I really love. Yeah. It's like imagining her as a young girl, you know, in like a uh, this incredible estate, you know, and it's like, of course, she likes flying planes and riding horses. Yeah. And smacking things with swords. Her brother's a friggin' nerd. All he cares about is yeah. science. <laughs> She was like a 19-year-old charter pilot. Like right. She, was, she like you know. flew around in like her expensive sunglasses. And like, yeah, I love her. <laughs> I do too. And I actually went before we did this and reread those 70s Captain Britain uh, stories, um, the ones by Claremont initially. And like it truly, she is really, even then, much more aggressive than Brian, much more sort of a little petulant, but like mm -hmm. in a way that's very self-assured. Um, and I think that she very much sees herself as the bad twin. Absolutely. Yes. She, and she knows she's the bad twin. She's and so that's why twin, yeah. Bri Brian's saying you're the good twin now. And she's like, what am I supposed to do with that? Yeah. How can I exist if I'm not beating myself up for stuff? And if I'm not beating for myself not up being for as stuff, good as you, I have to stop and, and assess it and assess who I am. And I think also, you know, again, not to get too far ahead of myself. If I've been quiet, it's because I am. Um, doing a lot of writing lately and there's a lot of stuff I don't want to say because I want right no of course I don't I, I don't want you to give anything away right yeah but I wanna, you know but I will also say that it's really interesting to me to write Betsy as a woman who is a model or was a model and has a really complicated relationship with physicality and uh bodies and mm -hmm. how various women's bodies are seen and 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 perceived um and that well it's notable that she she starts dressing sexy once she's in a new person's body entirely right, right. Like that's you know like she starts showing off her body once it isn't her body right and starts doing you know arguably more dangerous things once it's you know a body that isn't her own and 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 there's i think there's a lot that's easy to uh 
think I, I, I think part of why I may be a good person to write Betsy is because I, I see her in that and I sympathize mm-hmm. with the idea that um, maybe if I felt like I was freed from a body that I feel negatively toward and then I had to go back to it, um, that would be really complicated, I think, for me. And yeah, I think absolutely. I think it's complicated. It's complicated as a woman and it's also complicated, uh, you know, as a, as a model, you know, someone who worked in a field where, um, you know, eating disorders. Well, the kind of muscles you develop. Are, yeah. Yeah. The kind and, of muscle tone you develop as Captain Britain or as Psylocke is not really something you want for the catwalk when you're oh modeling my God. Givenchy, right? Yeah. One of my favorite uh, this wrestler I love named uh, Alexa Bliss used to be like a fitness model and then she became a wrestler and she was on a podcast talking about how she's like how she had, you know, a pretty, pretty serious eating disorder when she was um, a bodybuilder and like a, a fitness model because she had to have a certain look about her. And then once she became a wrestler, she was like, I can eat like yeah. I need to be strong. I need to be bigger. And like, to, I think a lot about, you know, how, how that mindset would apply to someone like Betsy. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, so I, uh, I have struggled with disordered eating stuff in my life. And so Aww. high five. <laughs> yeah. Like big high five. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons I love Polaris actually because mm-hmm. in the 90s X Factor uh, that Peter David did um, she develops an eating disorder because she's suddenly such a public superheroine and she's like mm-hmm. I mean the only women on the team it's like her and Wolfsbane and at the time Wolfsbane was trapped in her wolf form all the time like her half wolf form because of stuff that had happened uh, on Genosha um, and I think that uh, you know, so so basically Polaris is like, I'm like the hot girl on this like public right. government sponsored team. And she ends up going to, like a lot of therapy sessions with Doc Samson to like talk about the fact that she hates her body. And then she starts wearing this very sexy outfit to like overcompensate for it. And everyone's like, this is not this is not you. you. What's yeah. going on? Right. So that's I've always enjoyed that about about her. Um, I love those Doc Samson therapy issues. Too. Yeah, no, they're great. <laughs> And I think that, and I actually think that Polaris and Psylocke are two characters that have a lot in common in the sense that they both um, have been through a lot of sort of body shenanigans mm-hmm. because you, Polaris had the whole malice situation. Uh, not to quote myself, but as, as Rachel says to Betsy in Excalibur, it's an island of women who have been through a lot. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, and partly that's because um, Claremont really liked the female characters best you Mm -hmm. know and I think that he put that ethos sort of into the book not to say that his representation of women was always perfect but it really did inform X-Men forever going forever I mean there's a reason why outside of like do you like Cyclops or Wolverine it's like all the best X-Men are women yeah the most memorable characters that people reference are are usually women because they are the really the really iconic ones. I think Apocalypse deep down agrees. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, so we uh are we're this is running a little long, so I hope people are okay with that. Yeah, but and hopefully you're gonna edit out our t- I'm gonna edit <laughs> stuff that's like stuff. Yeah, that's not no, perfect. Um You've sounded great. Thank you. I, I just hope that the audio quality is good. I'm like so nervous. I've never really done this before. I am the I am your host. I am the talent booker and i am the producer everyone so it's a one-man operation over here i'm gonna say we a lot because i feel like podcasts say we but it's really just like me in my house so hopefully this sounds good um 
but so first and foremost, I just want to, you know, I didn't, I don't want you to have to give anything away, obviously, but I do, um, I know that Betsy is going to factor into Ten of Swords. Um, you and I have talked at length off offline about Opal Luna Saturnine, who is one of my favorite uh, comic book characters, like, of all time. And I can't tell you how thrilling it is to have her, like, not only be back, but be, like, the the centerpiece of a story like this. Because I've, I've had to explain on Twitter, like, 20 times now who she is to people. I'm like, no, 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 guys, she rules. She's awesome. Like She isn't Emma Frost. <laughs> she looked like this before Emma Frost. Yes! Emma was still wearing, Emma still had, like, a, a yellow bob and lingerie on. Like, this whole, the whole platinum blonde Veronica Lake, like, white dress look. Saturnine was doing that, you know, decades before Emma was. Um... A friend of mine said, who who was not familiar and is not a huge comics person, but she had read New X-Men because I knew she would love Emma. She said to me when I was like posting sort of Saturnine greatest hits from back in the day, she was like, I'm getting like Emma Frost, but an Earth sign vibe. And I was like, <laughs> that is really good, right? Because like yeah. Emma has like a, Emma has like a Scorpio kind of vibe, but like, sure, yeah. but like Saturnine's a Virgo. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. She's absolutely, oh, absolutely a Virgo. Yes. Um, so all that to say, um, and RIP Courtney Ross, obviously, as we must say, when any Saturnine, that wasn't this Saturnine. That was the evil Saturnine. This is the <sighs> only sort, this is the only sort of evil Saturnine. Excalibur was a complicated book. We've right? all seen Spider-Verse. We know what a <laughs> multiverse is. Like, this is the movie, like, whatever people are like, I don't know, guys, X-Men gets confusing because there are different realities. I'm like, y'all watch Spider-Verse. Different realities make perfect sense. Let's all stop pretending like we don't understand it. Captain Britain really did that first. I mean, Earth 616 or 616 or however you want to call it. I believe it's Saturnine who's the first person to say that on panel. I mean, there's a there, there's a history of the Captain Britain Corps not being a group of people that defend England, but the defenders of the multiverse, like the tribunal of multiversal judgment. Right. And they just happen to be in England because that's where like Avalon spills yes. out. You know what yes, I mean? And exactly. I think that, yeah, I mean, I know for a fact that that Captain Britain in the 80s is where 616 comes from. But I, uh, I, I do think actually it's Saturnine who says it first. I could be wrong. Also, the editors say 616, and I'm always like... I know, and I hate it. It's, it's 616. 616. I'm sorry. It's 616. I say 616. This is like, this is like, I have two things that I just cannot budge on in terms of like the way it is in my head. Like, I will drop the W from Canon, but um, Celine is pronounced Celine, and I was a classics major. I know it should be Celine, but it's been Celine, like Celine Dion Celine. in my head since yeah. I was a child. Her name is Celine. And then um, it's 616. It just is. I'm sorry. I can't. I'm, but I'm also one of those person who hates when you say like 2020. I'm like, it's 2020. Can we just like simplify it, please? This is going to be the thing that gets me like an email from the higher ups being like, you can't call it 616. You can't call it 616. <laughs> well, we're on, on my <laughs> podcast. It's my rules. And 616 to me is like more, it's more auditorially pleasing. My views do not reflect the views of Marvel Comics. No, however. you're only you're In only reflecting house, your own personal views. Well, that's also that is how British people would say it, right? Like I feel like so it was like a Captain Britain book, and you know if they're just walking around, like Beth I don't is know. like, oh, if you're oh, British we and you're listening, leave we're a back, <laughs> we're back, we're back on Earth six sixteen. Like they say, like you know, they say like thirty past uh, right. twenty four. What can you tell us about Ten of Swords? Uh, this uh, is in a lot of ways the um, the Captain Britain story we've been building to. Um, 
I'll, I'll say that for the, the Betsy Cedric fans that are uh, in the house. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very much uh, an other world story for a reason. Um, and that uh, in 10 of swords and, and after uh, what goes on in Excalibur will just, it, the, the, the function of Excalibur will change and uh, the landscape of what's available to them in the other world and all of that will, will change entirely. It's, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be wild. But um, yeah, if you've, if you've been, been looking for the story that, that, that uh, recontextualizes the why Captain Britain of all of this, uh, it's, it's coming. I'm very, very, very excited. Um, I really can't wait for that. And no. I will say um, that I, I'm just so happy that the first, this is probably the first time ever that a franchise-wide event is anchored on Excalibur as a book. Like that has never it happened It feels before. weird. <laughs> um, so the last fun bit that we're going to do, this is going to be a recurring bit. Um, I am like the two things that I probably love most in this world, pop culture wise are the X-Men and the real housewives on Bravo. Um, I actually represent a couple of real housewives at this point and I represent you and, and Steve Orlando. And so I basically like just, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Right. I think Steve Orlando and I are real housewives by extension and the real housewives can be X-Men if they'd like. I think so. So what I, (laughs) what I want, I almost called this podcast, the real housewives of Krakoa. Um, and then I thought that might be a little niche and like the SEO on it might not be great. Uh, not that the SEO on Cerebro is going to be great, but we'll make it work. Um, anyway, point is if you're not a real housewives fan, uh, to to the people listening, uh, the real housewives each season when they, you know, in the opening credits, they each will like turn one by one to the camera and have like a quippy like tagline that they say, um, while their name is sort of superimposed. And so what I want uh, everyone to do at the end of each episode is come up with the tagline that the character might have on The Real Housewives of Krakoa. I will say that Leah McSweeney, who's currently on Housewives of New York, has a perfect uh, Psylocke um, Betsy uh, tagline. She uh, boxes at at a gym sort of as a hobby. And so hers this season was, um, I may float like a butterfly, but I sting like a bitch, which I think is fantastic. And I was a little bit like, now I feel like I can't do a butterfly one, which is pretty obvious with, with, um, with Sock. But anyway, what would you have Betsy say? You're the writer. What would you have Betsy say? I have such good news for you. I wrote one while we were having this conversation and it's so good. Uh, I'm going to read it in a bad British accent, though, because I'm Betsy. Do it. No, do that. Do that. Absolutely. So she comes out and she has a little turn and she says, Some psychics eat their twin in the womb. I waited till we were out to take over my brother's life. There you go. And it was a little nod go. to I our love, love for Cassandra Nova. <laughs> uh, you know <laughs> I love X-Men. Cassandra Nova. So I was like, you know, we'll throw a little we'll throw a little nod towards some psychics trying to eat their twin in the womb, but not Betsy. She'll eat them up when she gets out. I was actually born with an extra thumb. And I have one of those like weird freckles that it turns out is a third nipple. So I was like, did I, eat? I realized suddenly I was like, did I eat my twin in the womb? Like, am I Cassandra Nova? It seems possible. It seems, I mean, it's probably, it was probably just a mutation, like, but yeah. you never know. A very groovy mutation. No, I know. I said, to, when, <laughs> when they told me about it, when I was an adult, I was like, what was I, an X-Man? You like got rid of my mutation. They were like, the thumb had no bones in it. I was like, ew, disgusting. They were like, right. So we took it off. I'm like, okay, fine. Um, had a fingernail though. Fucked up. 
that's the one that was haunting me when I was like brushing my teeth before bed last night. Yeah, I did tell you. I was like, you better come up with a Real Housewives tagline. I know. It was um, haunting me, but I wrote one while we were on the call and I was proud of it. So, so I don't want to make people listen for too much longer than an hour because I yes. know attention spans are limited, even in, in Quar. Um, but uh, I would like to thank you, first of all, for coming on the pod as the thank first you inaugural me. guest. I really appreciate you doing it. Um, and uh why don't you tell us um, where people can follow you online and uh, what they should be buying in the comic shop? Do some plugs. Well, sure. Uh, I live online at Teeny Howard, just T-I-N-I Howard, like the duck, all one word, on like Twitter and Instagram. I don't know. I'm not great at social media, but uh, I'm on, or you can uh, check out Excalibur in the local comic shops. Uh, a lot of comic shops right now are still open even for curbside service or for delivery. So definitely support your local bookstores and comic stores during this time because reading is a great thing to do with your mask on or safely from home. Um, so do a lot of reading and check out Ten of Swords with me and Jonathan Hickman and Pepe Larath and an amazing battery of chapters from the entire X team um, where my whole brain is in this event right now. If I sound a little brain dead to you guys, it's because uh, I everything else has been pushed out and my entire brain is Ten of Swords. <laughs> Um, Pepe Larath posted uh, some Saturnine art today, and I, like, oh. almost fell down. Like, I love the way he draws her so much. Listen, him, and, I mean, it, really the gift here, the angle was just trying to get a bunch of people to draw me sexy Saturnine art, and I won. That that Russell Dodderman so cover well. is, the, the Russell Dodderman cover where she just looks like Veronica Lake is, like, absolutely stunning. Body, um, body. I know, like a real Zoftig energy. I'm mm. enjoying it. Vargas girl, kind of mm-hmm. the omniversal magistrix, but also like a sexy pinup is exactly yeah. right. Um, well, you can follow Cerebro online on Twitter at Cerebrocast. You can follow me uh, there at Dream of Organon. Um, or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. I'm hoping eventually to get Connor Goldsmith on Twitter, but right now uh, some teenager from England is squatting on it. Um, so, you know, hope springs eternal. Um, but thank you for listening. I'm really excited about this podcast. I hope uh, it was a fun listen. And um, you can chat with me uh on Twitter would probably be the easiest way with any, you know, thoughts, input, because uh, I'd love to hear from you all and um, fine tune this as we go. So uh, I guess that's it for now. Tini, thanks so much again for joining me. Connor, thanks so much for having me. This was a blast. Um, and I can't wait to listen to the rest of the episodes where you have smarter guests on than this one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And we'll have to we'll have to have you come back at some point um, once once some other people have had a turn, because I know there are other characters you'd love to talk about. So Indeed. thank you so much. And um, until next time, everybody. Bye. Bye. X-Men. X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is...